If you're not uh, there already, I want to invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 5. This is, uh, this is an interesting text. You kind of think, uh, where do you find encouragement in uh, a list of names, right? It's a difficult uh, text uh, from that point of view. But it also is an opportunity for us to gather some, uh, some strands together. We've, we've been through Genesis uh, 1 through 4, and there's these strands that we get in Genesis 1 to 4 that are kind of now dangling out there. And maybe this is uh, hopefully an opportunity for us to gather some of them as we move further into Genesis and the rest of the, the Scripture. So that's what we want to think about as we look at this list of, of, of names. Uh, before we do that, though, uh, let's pray together and ask for God's help. Father, you are good. Uh, you are full of grace and love. And uh, even as we think about the, the world that we see around us and the curse that is still with us, uh, Father, we want to see your goodness uh, even in the midst of that world, Father. And so we pray that you would help us. We pray that you would help us to anchor ourselves to what you are doing in this broken world. And indeed, Father, to see ourselves as participants with you in what you're doing in this world. And so, Father, I pray that you would open our eyes uh, to what you're doing, not only in Genesis 5, but, but even as we move through the rest of the scriptures. Help us to see uh, what you're doing. Give us understanding, and, and Father, we, we ask that you would help us to, to think well. Uh, but Father, we also know that you didn't give us your word to make us smarter sinners. Uh, Father, you gave it because you want to change our lives. And so, Father, through your spirit, would you please be at work in doing that? Help us to leave this place looking a little more like Jesus. Help us to have more of a desire uh, to look like Jesus, to find our uh, all-satisfying joy in Him and in Him alone. So, Father, be at work in us. I want to invite you just silently, don't say anything out loud, but just ask that God might speak to your heart this morning what He wants to say through His Word. And then if you would again, silently, but if you would pray for me, uh, I need prayer this morning, so just pray for me that God might speak through me and help me. Father, help us to see today a big vision of Jesus and of what you have done through him and what you are doing through him. Uh, so, Father, we, we give this time to you and we pray that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've ever had a good plan or seen a good plan that uh, in the end turned out to be poorly executed. Uh, I remember during the uh, COVID pandemic, I started doing a little bit of woodworking. And there were times where I had this plan in my mind of what I wanted to build, but it didn't quite turn out the way I thought it would. And I had to kind of scrap it and get rid of it. Uh, and so the, the plan was good. 
but there was a, a limitation and a shortcoming in actually working it out. Or, and uh, I hope I don't step on anybody's toes right now, but maybe you've seen plans that like the city council has had for, for a road or for a development or something, and you thought, well, that's a good idea. Uh, but then you saw it executed and, and you saw the final product and you thought, well, maybe they could have done a little better than that. Uh, you know, we, we know as we have spent time in the scriptures, we know that God is at work, that he is doing something. But then we look around our world and what do we see? We see wars. Uh, we see inexplicable pain and suffering uh, all around us, don't we? And it's not just in the headlines, is it? It's, it's, it's not just something that we see out there. It's near to us. Uh, it is around us. It's even inside of us, right? And maybe sometimes we, you know, as we experience this personally, maybe in our darker moments, we feel like, well, gee, I think I could have done this a little better. You know, I see, God, your plan to, to work, but you're not doing very well with it, right? Given what we see around us and in us. Uh, and so, you know, sometimes I hear people say things like, there's no reason that a good God would do things in this way. And, you know, just intellectually, I want to challenge that that attitude betrays a certain arrogance because it means that we know every possible reason and that we can rightly say that there are none. And that assumes that, of course, we have an infinite knowledge, which, of course, assumes that we are God. And we saw last week that we're not, <laughs> right, in Genesis 4. But the reality is that suffering isn't just merely intellectual, is it? I mean, cancer, uh, abuse, divorce, those are not things that just happen out there. And so sometimes in our lives, we experience this emotional disconnect between God's good plan and, and what we, we, we see in Scripture as God's good plan and what we see in our own lives or experience in our own lives. And I want us to think about this uh, today as this text in Genesis 5 is moving us from Adam to Noah. I want us to think about this. But before we do that, I want to sound just a note of caution as we think about this topic. We have to tread carefully here and approach the text with humility. And here's what I mean. There are a lot of things that we just don't know. So God tells us a lot, but he doesn't tell us everything. And while we long for detail and we long for answers, God doesn't always give us what we want, does he? He doesn't tell us everything. And so we have to walk a fine line. On the one hand, trying to understand what is going on in the text as we look out in the world around us. But then not forcing the text of Scripture to say more than it wants to say. Because it doesn't say everything. And at the end of the day, we have to be honest and realize that we are far more like Job than we might want to be. Remember the story of Job. God never tells Job why he suffers the way he does. He doesn't have to. 
he doesn't owe Job anything. He doesn't owe us anything. He is God after all. And so ultimately, Job and we ourselves must trust. Let me just say one more thing just to set the stage for Genesis 5. We need to be careful as we read this list of, of names. We need to be, be careful lest we read this as a, a line of perfect people in contrast to the sinful people that we read about in Genesis 4, Cain and his line. Because these are sinners too. And yes, they call upon the name of the Lord, but the curse is very much still in place, even in this particular line of Seth. And I think, as we'll venture on into the text, I think that that is part of the point. So, that aside, why is this text here? Why do we have this list of people in Genesis 5? Well, besides moving the narrative along from Adam to Noah, I think this text wants to point us to something deeper. How do we think about, how do we relate to a God that we cannot fully understand? How do we think about or relate to a God that we cannot fully understand? When we think about that question in relation to this text, here's what we see. If you're taking notes, write it down. God's plan for blessing remains even in spite of the curse. God's plan for blessing remains even in spite of the curse. The picture that Genesis 5 paints is a picture that has blessing and curse running down parallel tracks in this fallen world. So as we look at the text of Genesis 5, the first two verses, blessing is front and center. Look at the first two verses. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Blessing is front and center in verses 1 and 2. As the author connects us back to God's good intent in Genesis chapter 1. Two bookends that we see in verses 1 and 2. When God created man, and then when they were created. And in between those two bookends, we see four notes that together signify this blessing that God's intent is to bless man in his creation. And so we see in verse 1, he made them in his likeness to know and love him. We see he made them male and female to accomplish the purpose that he had for them. Uh, that he blessed them, that he named them, that they were his people, his creation. God's intent in verses 1 and 2 is they're connected back to Genesis 1. God's intent is to bless his people. And what we see is through procreation, as, as we go through this line, as man uh, and woman, as they do what God uh, has done, uh, the blessing continues. It's passed down. So the Imago Dei, the image of God in mankind, is, is carried on 
in each successive generation. M- mankind still has a purpose and a place in God's design and in his plan to bless. And so as we go through this genealogy, which, which might seem like just a list of names, but as we go through it, we see that as God fathers, so does Adam, so does Seth, so does Enosh, and Kenan, and Jared, etc., etc. As God creates in his likeness, so does Adam, so does Seth, so does Enosh, so does Kenan, etc., etc. As God names his people, so does Adam, so does Seth, so does Enosh, so does Kenan, etc., etc. The blessing and God's intent to bless remains intact as humanity expands and grows on the earth. And yet, at the same time, we see these continual reminders that things are not what they were. As Dar was reading the text, you noticed there was a pattern throughout the text that each successive generation, eight times we hear that phrase, and he died, and he died, and he died. And he died. So though we see this expansion of blessing as, as, as humanity expands, the curse is now firmly rooted in creation. And everyone suffers the fate of death and separation. And so the author wants us to see in this chapter with this juxtaposition of blessing and continued blessing and curse. He wants us to see that God is working out his plan for blessing within this world that is not what it used to be. God is working out his blessing in the midst of this crooked world, in the midst of this uh, cursed world. It's not forgotten. Uh, the, the blessing is, is, not, uh, is not destroyed. But this is the stage in which this blessing is now being worked out. And here, it's in, in that context that we see a few glimmers of hope. There's a certain pattern that we see in each of these successive generations. And that pattern gets broken a couple of times. And so we see within Genesis 5 these glimmers of hope. Hope that the blessing remains in spite of the curse. And these glimmers of hope we see uh, that they kind of jump out to us. Number one, based on the ages of these men. But number two, in the breaking of the pattern that we saw as we went through, as Dora read through the text. Now, Let me just pause for a minute here and just address the elephant that is in the room, okay? Uh, We're drawn, as we hear these verses read, to the staggering ages that these guys live. Uh, if If you paid attention, nearly all of them were around 900 years old, in the 900s, or at least near enough to it. Now, part of that is the point, I think, because it's going to highlight a couple of guys. But, but, but how do we think about that? How do we think about people living to be that particular age? And let me just say, there is a lot 
of scholarly ink that has been spilled on that question. And here's the bottom line. Anytime you see, uh, anytime you see scads of scholarly ink spilled on something, it means that we really don't know. And we have to be honest that we really don't know how to explain this. I think, personally, the best that we can say is that there was something about the pre-flood world that allowed for longer ages, longer lifespans, so that in God's design, these people could be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And I'm not sure that we can really do better than that with certainty. So that's where I'm coming to rest. Now with that, there's another, uh, there's another thing uh, that, that kind of causes us to go, now wait a minute, how do we uh, explain, how do we uh, deal with the idea of, of marriages here in these verses, right? Uh, we can't escape, I, I don't think anyway, we can escape the idea that the Bible traces all of humanity back to Adam and Eve. I don't think we can deny that and still hold to the integrity of Scripture. Certainly, the Apostle Paul made the point in Romans 5 that all of humanity goes back ultimately to Adam as his representative head in terms of original sin. That means that these people are marrying their near relatives, right? Uh, they're marrying their, their close relatives. So again, how do we account for that? Well, I'll just say again with all humility, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not sure. Um, again, there's a lot of ink that's been spilt. Here's what we know. Uh, there hasn't been a law given that would forbid that. To this point. Leviticus and Deuteronomy with the coming of the law, we see that forbidden, but it's not forbidden here in this particular time. Now, multiple thousands of years removed from this, we know now that genetic entropy means that marrying your sister is a dangerous genetic proposition, isn't it? But we have to say that that doesn't seem to have been the case back then. And I think that's the best that we can do because, frankly, God just doesn't go into detail and explain that. He's not interested in that. He's interested in other things. Okay, so elephant in the room, there you go. You can come and talk to me later if you want, but you know what I'm going to say. Okay, so who are these glimmers of hope that we see in this chapter? Who stands out uh, in this chapter? Well, First, we see Enoch uh, in verses 21 to 23. Enoch breaks the pattern uh, of these other guys. Listen to what he says in 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God, and he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had... Uh, after he fathered, sorry, Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years, had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So Enoch breaks the pattern here, doesn't he? Every other guy we see, and he died. But Enoch we see, and he took him. God took him, which took him means that he did not die. He didn't die. The text tells us that this is because he walked with God. Now, that phrase, walking with God, it means a variety of different things throughout the, the scriptures. But at its core, 
it points to faith. If you want to write down Hebrews 11 verse 5, here's what the author of Hebrews tells us. He says, by faith, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. So for the author of Hebrews, God took him means that he did not die, right? And uh, so by faith, Enoch was taken up, he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. How did he please God? By faith. This is the connection the author of Hebrews wants to make. That it was by faith that Enoch was commended before God so that he didn't experience death. God took him. How do we know it was by faith? Well, listen to what he says next. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So how did Enoch please God, which resulted in him being taken and not experiencing death? It was faith. So whatever walking with God means in Genesis 5, it at least means, or at its core, it involves faith. And so this is what we see in Enoch. And what this presents to us in Genesis 5 is the seed form of the idea that walking with God in faith is the way in which we overcome the curse. The curse is overcome as we walk with God through faith. And we see that in its seed form here in Enoch. Well, we see another guy in verses 28 to 31, Lamech. And Lamech breaks the pattern as well, not only in the years that he lives, but in what we see about him. In verses 28 to 31, we we see Lamech, and again, his age is said to be 777 years. and, And that's probably meant to remind us of another Lamech in chapter 4, in that line of Cain. And Lamech points us to Noah, whom the text says will give rest. As we move on in the narrative of Genesis in chapter 6, verse 9, we're told that Noah is a man of faith as well. So we again see a person of faith being highlighted in the text. Now just a note about how the author is using these genealogies here. Noah is ten generations removed from Adam in chapter 5. In chapter 11, we're going to see another genealogy in the, from the, the descendants of Shem, who is Noah's son. And ten generations removed from Shem is another man of faith, a man named Abraham. And so we see faith held up in Enoch. We see faith held up in Noah. And we see faith held up in Abraham as we move through the narrative of Genesis. So, listen. If you're at a party sometime and someone asks you, what in the world is up with the genealogy in Genesis chapter 5? If that ever happens to you, you just tell them it's so that we can be reminded that God is working out his plan for blessing in the midst of a cursed world. You can amaze your friends with your knowledge of Genesis chapter 5. But what do you do if you're sitting with someone who's dying of cancer? 
What do you do then? How does God's plan for blessing work when the curse is not theoretical? It's not something that we read about on the pages of an ancient text. What do you do when the curse is real? If God is working out a plan, why is he doing it this way? How do we account for what we see around us? Let me just expand on what we said before to say this way, something that is a little more timeless. In spite of the curse, in spite of what we see around us, and even when it doesn't make sense to us, God is still moving all things to his appointed end in accordance with his plan to bless. Now, I'm going to slow down a little, uh, increase the throttle, climb an altitude a little. I want us to think about just a few things together. So just stick with me. And I want us to try to take some of these dangling strings and, and pull them together a little bit to see how God is at work to accomplish his ultimate end of blessing, even in the midst of the world that we see around us. So first of all, remember why God creates. Remember that God creates not because he's lonely. He doesn't create because he's looking for something to do in retirement. Uh, he creates because he is loving and self-giving. Father, Son, and Spirit eternally loving, giving themselves to one another in Trinity. And that love overflows in creation in order that he might be able to share that love with his creatures. And so he creates humans in his image in order that they might represent him to all of creation so that all of creation might know his love. And so in the garden, as Adam and Eve were to be fruitful and multiply, that garden temple, that dwelling place of God was to expand, to fill the whole earth so that all creation might know this God of love. In the garden, Adam and Eve have direct access to his life-giving presence in the tree of life, right? But they reject it. And the curse enters in and sin enters and it changes everything. Now, that possibility was embedded in creation because God did not create robots, did he? He didn't create robots that were programmed to love him. That's not love. Love isn't programmed, is it? He didn't create robots. He created people in his image. And he is a God of love. He is not a, a, a robot. To love demands the choice not to love. And so Adam and Eve had to decide something. There were two trees. There was the tree of life, his, his sustaining, loving presence. But then there was also another tree. A tree that was represented disobedience. And now Adam and Eve, listen, we have to say they had that choice in a way that no one else does after sin enters the world, but they had that choice. There's two trees. And listen, before you're hard on Adam and Eve, if they hadn't done it, you would have done it, okay? And I would have done it. The possibility was always there. And they chose sin. And once mankind is banished from God's life-giving presence, God sets out to rescue them, to return them to his life-giving 
presence. And so what we see is God out to destroy the sin that is hurting his people and to destroy it forever. He's not going to, God's not going to kind of just partially destroy sin. He's not going to do it halfway. No, when God destroys sin, he's going to destroy sin completely and totally. And he's going to do it for all time. People sometimes say to me, why doesn't God judge sin now? And, And what they mean by that when they say it most of the time is, why doesn't God judge everybody else's sin now. Because here's the reality. The, the, the reality is that when God finally destroys sin, it means destroying anyone who has sin in them. God is out to destroy the sin that is hurting his people. So what's taking him so long? Why won't he do it already? Second well, Peter chapter 3 tells us that he waits because he is patient. In chapter, uh, 2 Peter 3, verse 9, he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wanting anyone, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So God is letting things play out in this world because he longs to rescue people who would otherwise be destroyed, wanting instead to save them, that they might know and enjoy his love forever. How many of you in the room are glad that God did not finally and completely judge sin in 1981 or 1997 or 2008? Because if he had, you would not be here. So God is patient, wanting people to come to repentance in this day of grace that they might know and enjoy his love forever. And what are we left with in the end? Ultimately, in the eternal state in Revelation 21 and 22, we are presented with another garden temple. A universal garden temple temple that's been expanded to fill all of the new creation in which God dwells fully with his people. But here's the important difference. In the original garden, there were two trees. In Revelation 21 and 22, we are only left with the tree of life. One tree. We are left with, in Revelation 21 and 22, a people Again, this is God's intent all along. A people who love God and glorify Him by enjoying His all-satisfying love forever. Listen, without the possibility of sin. Not because they're robots, but because God has destroyed sin in Christ. This is what we're left with. This is His mission. And incidentally... This is why you and I, as believers in Jesus, are still here. This is why we are not raptured immediately when we're converted. Because God is even now expanding His presence through His people. that, that, That we might share with the people around us 
so that all around us might know and enjoy God's love. So let me say it this way. Because of his love, God is destroying sin and saving a people who will know his love forever, fully in his presence, without the possibility of sin. And because of the finished work of Christ, that outcome, God's ultimate win, is certain. It will come to pass because Christ has already won the victory. God's desire to bless his people with the all-satisfying joy that comes from his presence. This is what he's working towards. And now we experience that in part, tainted, as it were, by this cursed world. But we look forward to the day when we will experience that love in his presence forever without the possibility of sin. And so we often say and we think about uh, the, the salvation that is ours in, in existing in three tenses. So Jesus has saved us from the penalty of sin. Uh, he, he is saving us from the power of sin. And he will save us one day from the very presence of sin. And that is what we look forward to. That is the ultimate end that we cry out for, even as we are here participating with God in that mission. Now, that might be as helpful as God's response to Job at the end of the book of Job. I don't know. Uh, again, how does that help us when God acts in ways that we don't understand? Well, it gives us a place to hang our hat. It gives us something to anchor our souls to in those times where we experience this cursed world and we experience things that we don't understand. It tells us that when we can't understand his mind, when we can't understand why he might allow certain things to happen, when we can't understand his mind, we can trust his heart. We, we, we can trust his heart. And Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18 is a great verse here to, to, to cling to, where in Hebrews 6, verse 18, he says, By two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this hope as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. We have certain promises in God's word which we, to which we can anchor ourselves when life doesn't make sense to us, when it doesn't make sense, when we can't understand. God has promised that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Uh, God has told us and promised that we stand completely forgiven in Christ, that we are new even as we are being made new. He's promised that he will finish in us the work that he began, uh, that he is able to get us all the way from where we are now into his presence forever without losing any of us. He's even able to use those difficult circumstances and that suffering to accomplish that purpose in getting us from A to B. 
He's promised us that his plan will not fail. His rescue mission to redeem fallen creation will succeed. He's promised. And he invites us to join him in that mission. He has promised that he will do that work even through broken vessels. Even through uh, sinful people, he will accomplish his purpose. And so we look with anticipation through the curse. We look with anticipation to ultimate deliverance and life. See, this is the gospel that we believe. That Jesus has accomplished the redeeming work of God. That he is the seed that everything before was pointing to. That in him, the veil is torn and we have direct access to God through faith as adopted sons and daughters. That the curse may be real, but that he is bigger than the curse. This is what God is doing. And it is beautiful, even though sometimes we can't see it. Several years ago, I, I watched some YouTube videos about guys doing art and sculpting uh, using a chainsaw. And they started with this big slab of wood. And, uh, you know, you look at this big slab of wood and you think, what could possibly come out of that? What, what could possibly be beautiful about that? And then you watch as they skillfully take this chainsaw and they start carving and uh, chiseling and, and removing. And ultimately you're left with this beautiful piece of art. You didn't see it coming. And this is what God is doing. His intent is to bless as he raises up redeemed worshipers of all nations that we might enjoy his presence and his love forever without the possibility of sin. And he's doing that work and accomplishing that work within this world that is scarred and that is cursed. And sometimes we don't understand how all of that fits together. But when we don't, we can be certain that he is trustworthy, that he is faithful, that he will accomplish his purpose. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are bigger than us because we look around this world and we can't make sense of it. We can't understand it. We don't know what's going on. We can't connect A and B and C. But Father, we believe that you can. And we believe that you are working even in the midst of this crooked world for your glory and our good. And Father, we pray that for those who are following, Je who are following Jesus right now, and are struggling with the curse, we pray, Father, that you would give them the strength, give them the grace to anchor themselves to your certain word, that they would trust you. And Father, for those that have never come to the place where they have trusted in Jesus, Father, for those that are trusting in their own goodness or their own uh, religiosity or whatever, Father, we pray 
that your spirit would move in their heart, that they would see that Jesus is their only hope at overcoming the curse. And Father, that they would look to him and place their trust in him. Thank you, Father, that when we can't understand your mind, we can trust your heart. We pray that you would help us. In Jesus' name, amen.